Deezer Originals. This is Defending in Numbers. Welcome, everybody, to Defending in Numbers, the show where we walk down the corridor of uncertainty pretending to know a little bit more about football than we really do. Hello to all of you that are subscribed on Deezer, on iTunes. Make sure you rate, review and subscribe. Get us up that algorithm. Make us rich, famous and successful. When I say us, I mean myself, Rob Armstrong, Electric Avenue, George Ellick. I'm good. All right, hot as ever, but but yeah, exciting. Uh, and he's not talking about the temperature, I can tell you that much. <laughs> and next to him, a man with a less exciting name, Jake Entwistle. <laughs> just pure, you just had to go for it, yeah. Less exciting, but uh, I make up for it with my with my numbers. Yeah, ladies, watch you can tell, out. can't you? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you walk into a pub and you see people flocking around as like all these sexy ladies and gents and they're all talking and then Jake comes in and gives a stat and everyone flocks around in both both genders flock to the stats <laughs> speaking of stats I suppose we should really crack on with our first feature week by numbers the week by numbers and the first number we're going to start with is the number seven which was the number Marcus Rashford was wearing on the back of his shirt and also the number of take-ons he completed against Malta more than any other player despite playing 45 minutes Ryan Giggs, right, who I'm not sure is the best pundit out there. Great player, but I'm not sure is the best pundit. He said he's like Thierry Henry. Is Marcus Rashford the next Thierry Henry? I think he's probably better than Thierry Henry was. What? I know you're hot, but I don't on, need a hot take. You could, have, you could have let me finish when, when okay. Thierry Henry was 19. Correct. I should. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the difference, obviously, between Henry was a winger who was turned into a striker and... Uh, and it looks like, you know, obviously Rashford only played up top for a very brief spell when he first came to the United team, but he's now been been employed as a wide man. Last season, I was pretty scathing of Jose Mourinho's use of him uh, on the flank, and, and he's made a mockery of me because he's definitely improved as a player by doing so, and, he, and he's become a much more rounded player. His performance uh, against uh, Slovakia as well, you know, he made a very bad mistake early on, and then he, he put it in the corner. What is it with England corner takers, by the way? But anyway, it was uh, the corner in. For, for, Sounds like the beginning of your stand-up set. Yeah, yeah. What is it with these England corner takers? <laughs> oh, am I right? But for the first goal, the second goal was absolutely pure class, and I'd say almost pure Henri. It was the way he he was about to play a, a, a ball wide, and he saw the gap, and he did this really nice kind of dummy stroke with his. Uh, he grazed his boot against the grass, looked up, and then just wedded at bottom left, and that's pure Henri. So. You know, it's 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 a bit pointless comparing players um, too, you know, carefully with, other, with with former players. But I can see the similarities there, and I think he's a, he's a huge prospect. You got a similarly hot take, Jake. You, uh, oh, hot take, not, Jake. That's what I should. Oh, that's what I should call Hot take, We've Jake. Got it for next time. <laughs> well, I'm going to disappoint because it's not going to be as hot as uh, uh, what George has said. But take. I do um, I do think that he's sort of just cemented his place as. England's go-to wide man now. Um, obviously, Harry Kane is never going to be moved away from that centre-forward position, uh, no matter what posi- uh, formation we play, really. So Marcus Rashford in these two games has has shown that he is not only the most dangerous wide player we have in terms of direct running pace, but he's the most effective as well. Uh, he already got uh, back-to-back assists in both those games. George mentioned the corner. He picked one up against Malta. As I said, the actual number in question is the take-ons, and that's something you associate with the likes of Alex Oakley-Chamberlain and Raheem Sterling. And Marcus Rashford is different in the fact that, despite being younger than both of them, his time spent playing up front for Man United uh, for the past two seasons means that when he does get into those areas where England need a player to make a decisive impact, uh, we're relying on a 19-year-old to do it. And 
he single-handedly turned the game around against Slovakia. He was the only one that was looking to shoot and, and, and looking to make the breakthrough. The fact he's made such an impact in that role is obviously bad news for the likes of Raheem Sterling and Oxlade-Chamberlain because it looks like Rashford will be the first name on the team sheet for one of those wide positions. The other two are competing against each other. I feel like other players might have melted after making the mistake for the first goal as well because it was it was a classic young player trying to run through his yeah. own penalty box, wasn't it? Basically, for the rest of the game, he never hid once, did he? He, he wanted the ball the whole time, straight afterwards. It's definitely what he's like as a player, I think. You, you only have to look at the, the fateful Iceland game where, where England got knocked out of the uh, of the Euros last year and he was brought on way, way too late in the game and he was basically the only player who ever looked like he was going to score after after the reading penalty. So he's a player who's got that, he's got that fearlessness about him, I think, that the more he's, he's played and, and, you know, he was part of a pretty poor United team last season and had to face up some pretty, not not criticism himself, but a team that faced up some criticism and it doesn't seem to have rubbed off on him too much. So, yeah, that 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 energy, that youthfulness is something that we need to encourage and not, you know, not, not squeeze out. So you take the number seven and then you put an eight next to it and that makes 78, unless you're from one of the countries where they read from right to left, <laughs> in which case it's 87. But we're not one of those countries. We're Roy Hodgson's England, <laughs> reading from left to right. 78. The number of international goals Cristiano Ronaldo has scored. More than Pele now. 78 goals at international level. And obviously, I know he's played a lot more games than a lot of the other players at the top of that chart have got, but it's still pretty impressive. But that being said, he is currently banned. So <laughs> is, this, uh, is this sort of spell for Portugal where he's just scored these two goals? Is he, how, to, how, to, how should I put it, it's, is he concentrating more on his country than other players do? Because there's obviously that big debate about club before country. He's achieved everything at club level, but Portugal still seems to mean so much to him, whereas maybe other players that have reached the top of their club, you don't see it so much. Isn't that so depressing? Shame that we're talking about it. It should. It used oh, to be a case. No, but it used to be. It used to be a case where you know all fellow all players felt like playing for their country was the pinnacle, and you know the passion that we saw from Ronaldo in Paris last last year when he went off injured and it was barking orders out on the touchline is it, something that you'd wish to see from England players more often. And uh, and I'm not sure if you do whether or not. I mean, this suspension. Milner and <laughs> Southgate on the sideline. He didn't have a choice about whether or not he can he can focus on his on his on his La Liga career at the moment because he because he's suspended. But there's no doubt that Ronaldo for for all his detractors. And all the some people have a go at him for some things, but his his, his passion and his and his commitment to Portugal can, is something that can, we can only laud. Yeah, I think what I was trying to get is there's there was no no kind of glimpse that he was trying to save himself for his return. He was going all out for his country and seems to just is just going to do that forever, right? Yeah, that well, that was his 48th career hat trick, which again is like people don't score 100. How many is that? 144 goals. People don't score that in their career. He's he's he is an absolute marvel in terms of goal scoring, and I think that's mainly because of his drive and determination. In whatever sphere he's in, whether it's club level, whether it's youth level, whether it's for the national team, the one thing that seems to drive him is that pursuit of goals, the pursuit of records. And so he's second all-time uh, top European scorer on an international level. He's uh, Puskas is in front with 84. And no matter if he puts his Real Madrid career in jeopardy or, or either way, I can't see him retiring until he beats it. And that's what's made him such an incredible player. Is what about that Iranian geezer? Is he Iranian at the top? Yeah, he's on yeah. The, he's yeah, over, yeah. on over a hundred. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Ronaldo will beat that. But in terms of becoming Cristiano Ronaldo, the all-time top-scoring European ever, that is a title that will that will sit lovely with him. And yeah. 
That Iranian geezer is never going to win a Euros either. I, th- I think he could. You know, I mean, he could get over a hundred for sure. Like he's going to, he's still playing at the top top level. He could yeah. con- he could continue playing for Portugal as long as he plays football if he wants to. There's only another what like eight hat tricks or something. Yeah, easy, easy by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with all these friendlies as well. Eight hat tricks, which doesn't add up to 103. That's how many years it's taken for Luxembourg to get a result against France. 103 years it's taken them. They had 74% possession, France that is, 31 shots, and were 126 places above Luxembourg in the FIFA rankings. And let, and yet the match finished 0-0. One of the sort of more Englandy moments of France's football history, I think. Uh, how did how did they do it? Was it just was it luck or was it just hard work? Are Luxembourg actually going to be a decent team? Was there any decent players in there, or was it just an off night for France? I think it was more of an off night for France. Uh, Griezmann missed two sitters on his on his weaker right foot. Uh, France, for all the criticism they got back at home, I don't think France in general are happy with Didier Deschamps at at, at the helm. But um, they created more than enough chances to win that game. And although Luxembourg hit the post on this incredible counter-attack where Lauren Koscielny was made to look like an, an amateur footballer, which is, which is really worrying. Uh, it seems like he's fallen off a cliff. But the France football are, are known at the moment for having one of the most attacking uh, and exciting young sides. Yeah, and was it 400 um, million quid or something? Yeah, they're, they're, and I think Luxembourg's was 27,000, I think, total value. So Rip off. There was, a, there was a big disparity. But the thing that France fans are annoyed about well, is the fact that they couldn't score goals and, and their, 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 their most exciting talent on the pitch uh, was uh, Kylian Mbappe, who's in the news at the moment. He was incredible in the first half and got taken off after 58 minutes. Mm. And uh, they brought on Kingsley Coman, another attacking winger, and he didn't have the same impact. And I think that's what disgruntled the French fans was that they couldn't score a goal against this Luxembourg side. Uh, they'd beaten them 16 times in a row before before this uh, and they've drawn 0-0 at home. So no matter the the fact of whether it was sort of a one-off, uh, they still think it only uh, gives them ed- evidence to suggest that Deschamps won't be the right man to get the best out of this young squad. Suddenly you mentioned uh, Kingsley Coman because it wasn't, wasn't all that long ago. We were talking about him like he was going to be the future Don Dapper of Iron Apple. <laughs> and now he's kind of just fell into the shadows of the the Monaco gang basically well, isn't it I mean he didn't play enough last year I think and he's it's, it's always the issue with these young talents is how they're going to progress and and obviously all footballers go through hot streaks and it seems like Kingsley Koeman was certainly one who did that and he's probably now going through a lull and he'll probably come back stronger at some stage but I mean in terms of this game a couple of things just to point out is that Luxembourg obviously um, aren't a great footballing nation, but they're not necessarily Whoa. they're not Whoa. necessarily the whipping boys that they that they've been before. This was the fifth point in their group, so you know whilst in, in previous years this would have been an easy win, I think that now these days teams like Luxembourg and, and Malta as well, to, for their credit, um, who you know held England for a long time um, in that game as well. It's kind of a similar story to what Liverpool fans experienced last season, where if you've got this wealth of attacking talent and, and teams are just going there knowing that all they've got to do, all they need to do, all they're going to try and do is just stop you from scoring and get a nil-nil draw. It's actually very hard to break teams down. Um, I'm not sure. I think that's something that's kind of become the case more and more these days, where the plucky underdog can, can kind of get their glory by just sitting back. So, I mean, it's 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 pretty poor from France, but at the end of the day, it doesn't reflect in any way, in my opinion, of, of their chances next summer. All right, the next number we're going for is the number 10, and we're talking Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola. So these two have faced each other 10 times. 
And Jurgen Klopp has won five, Pep's won four times, but Pep has obviously won two Bundesliga titles and the German Cup at his expense. So they meet this weekend. Uh, Klopp won the first time in England and then they drew one all in March. So how do you reckon this one is going to go between those two wonderful charismatic managers? Fancy, fancy Liverpool and Klopp. Um, their records against uh, good teams has been exemplary under him. It's the, it's the poor teams they struggle against when they can play on the counter attack. They they really excel, and you know there's no secret to how Pep Guardiola likes to play football. He doesn't really have a plan B. They they top the pass uh, pass completion metric with 1,886 so far. Pass accuracy metric with 87%. They top the possession metric with 63%. So we know that City are going to set up to to dominate possession, to dominate the board, and that plays into Liverpool's hands. If you look at chances created this season, City have created 37 to Liverpool's 35. But considering City City have played Brighton, Everton and Bournemouth you've got to think that uh, they've had the easier games and if you're looking at shots inside the box City have had 27 compared to Liverpool's 36 so as far as I'm concerned Liverpool have started the season better I think that uh, City are still still just about my my, uh, prediction to win the title purely because over the season I think they'll be better but this is the kind of game that Klopp's teams excel in this is is City dominating possession and and the front line of the likes of Salah and Mane breaking uh, speeds Uh, we know that City aren't great on the turn, we know that their defensive frailties can easily be exposed. So, I'm uh, I'm, I'm positive that the, the Liverpool can get a result. How do you how do you think these two have done in England? Because Jurgen Klopp, I mean, it's very small sections, but every now and again you see a Liverpool fan pop up on social media saying they want Klopp out, and then Pep Guardiola, obviously. It's a, it's his second season, but I think Man City. It's fair to say they under underperformed quite badly last year. Do you think they're they're going to go on to be massively successful for their clubs and win lots of silverware, or do you think maybe one, if not both, is perhaps riding a wave of hype more than they are uh, actual sort of managerial credibility? Yeah, I think um, I think the Jurgen Klopp has sort of uh, finished riding that wave. This the, the squad he's put together now is probably the most exciting and and the best he's had whilst being at Liverpool. So this will be the real season that we see if Jurgen Klopp is. The, the manager that everyone thinks he is and, and, and most likely is. He, he's obviously gone with this certain style at Liverpool uh, and just like adding to the numbers that uh, George has just said there, since taking over, Liverpool have um, made more tackles in the, in the final third than any other team in the Premier League and, and that's 164 to be exact. And that just speaks volumes about what he's tried to do since being at Liverpool, the same as what the possession statistics say about Man City. Uh, Klopp, I think, has succeeded in, in bringing that uh, characteristic to his team it just sometimes breaks down against the teams that um, aren't interested in keeping the ball in their own defensive third so therefore negate the press that Klopp's looking to impose upon them uh, so in terms of Pep Guardiola as well I think again he's been unfairly labelled as like the, the checkbook manager due to the spending this summer Fuliola. yeah exactly <laughs> I think I think he gets a bit of a bit of stick considering that he inherited two very good teams but he also helped build them they weren't uh, it wasn't just good players they made, he made them play in a very very exciting way and won a lot of trophies because of it and again in a similar position to Jurgen Klopp I think the fact that he did uh, open his checkbook this year he's bought the players that he needs the fullbacks are going to be massive for them this season uh, Benjamin Mendy's finally fit and I'm really looking forward to see him play uh, I think this will be the season where both of them we can really make a conclusion uh, on whether they are going to succeed in the Premier League because they seem to both have all the tools that they need uh, to to fulfil their own plans and Mm. execute them uh, in every match. So no excuses anymore. Yeah, that's probably the the long and short of it. Mind you, Klein, 
out of his back injury. Poor old Oxide Chamberlain turned down everywhere to play centre midfield, and now he's probably going to be filling in for Klein for the next three months, isn't he? We've got uh, Trent Alexander yeah, Arnold. I keep saying Trent. I think I, I think he's possibly even first choice when Klein's fit. Yeah, right? he's, really. Yeah, you learned something new there, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I'm googling it right now, like Danny Rose. <laughs> One thing as well is uh, Pep Guardiola's actually lost to Jurgen Klopp more times than any other manager. That five that we mentioned earlier—that's the most he's ever lost to a single manager. So. I really, I agree with George. I think Liverpool will win this one purely because Jurgen Klopp's style and what he wants to get from his team, this counter-attacking fast-break team, is perfect against teams in possession. Made up of 11 attacking midfielders. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So actually, let's just get a a sort of score prediction. George? 3-1 to Liverpool. I was genuinely going to say the same thing. Guys. You to guys make, should hang out more. I know. Uh, I just think that'll be it. Will be like Liverpool go one 0 up, Man City equalise, and then get to get too big for the boots and try and score another. Well, if, if Liverpool are winning two one, it's not going to end that way. Something's going to give it either end because yeah. they'll be pouring forward. All right, final number four hundred and two. And what a large number! That's the number of chances created by Mesut Özil since moving to the Premier League. More than any other player. Also, more assists with forty two, and one enormous Facebook post. Yeah. this week which he said stop shouting and start supporting or something and yeah. said he loved his time at Arsenal but then finished with I don't know if I'm going to be here next year which is always good to hear uh, what was all that about then Jake? I could th- we could have done a Mesut Ozil special really because well, of what's I, happened this week niche. I know but uh, <laughs> that's how sort of much I've been looking into this and trying to figure out which side is right and I don't think I think it falls somewhere in between uh, those numbers obviously show that he is a very good creative force and I think that's the mistake um, Meza Ozil won't be your sort of Christian Eriksen in terms of creating those chances and then scoring an incredible goal from the edge of the box Meza Ozil has been sort of constructed to create boundless chances for his teammates and during this international break he already got two assists and a goal for Germany because in that system they use him as the central point in their attack he is the attacking midfielder and they say Meza you will create and that's it and in the Premier League and in English football, there's this agenda and this narrative that players should contribute to every phase of play, which I understand that you want to see players making tackles in every area of the pitch. But at Real Madrid, Mesut Ozil was used as the playmaker. And, uh, and when just looking at his numbers uh, during those three seasons in La Liga, um, I've sort of done a comparison of, of these 402 chances created to sort of make a point about why I feel like he gets... Let's see if it matches up with mine. Yeah. um, So in La Liga, he created 313 chances and got 47 assists. So he was getting assists every 6.66 chances created. Since moving to the Premier League, we mentioned the 402, which is equaling 42 assists, which is already less. uh, And that's 9.57 chances created per assist. And I just feel like when you're playing in Real Madrid, you obviously have the best players around you. But people saying that uh, Mesut Ozil isn't doing his job for Arsenal, I'd say that he, he's doing exactly his job and what he should be doing. It's just the team selection and, and the system around him. The resources being sucked away from what he's good at. You've got Danny Welbeck up front who has a 13% conversion rate since joining Arsenal. They've just bought a striker. When you, include, when you exclude penalties, Alexandre Lacazette has a 22% conversion rate. If you put him up front and let Ozil get back to doing what he does best then I think this sort of idea that he's hiding or that he's not playing as well will sort of be eradicated. 
uh, very quickly. George, you think it's rubbish, don't you? No, I think it's brilliant. Oh. Um, <laughs> and I think that, that reminds me of something that Matt Letizia says about 20 years ago uh, after he scored a brace against Newcastle and they interviewed like him. Bambi on, oh no, that's Ali Dia, sorry. <laughs> Letiz, is absolutely <laughs> superb. Um, Letiz was asked afterwards, they said, you know, he, he scored this unbelievable brace against Newcastle, arguably the best ever in the Premier League. And they said, how do you do it? And he says, well, you know, I walk around the pitch, when I get the ball, I try something good. When, I, when it doesn't come off, they call me lazy. I don't understand. I'm, I never do anything differently. And the same reminds me of Ozil. Like, he, he can't be the player he is unless he plays the way he does. He can't be energetic or wear his heart on his sleeve because he wouldn't find the pockets of space he needs to find. He can't play the simple balls because he's not going to create if he does so. And the criticism he gets is, is almost as laughable as the praise he gets when it comes off because there's a great player in there. He's an unbelievable you know, creator. And as Jake said, when there's, if you've got a player there who can put it away, he's going to create goals for you. But if you're expecting him to be that grafter and that guy who's going to put, put a shift in and change his body language, it's never going to happen. But then he wouldn't be the player he is. How do they... Do, I don't know if either of you know, but how do they sort of see him abroad? Because obviously over here, the media is very much... In, in Germany, they think he's an yeah. absolute, absolute well, star. He's, yeah. won, he's won German Player of the Year uh, at least twice in the past three years. Only Thomas Müller in like the current squad that was just picked had more caps than him. He's got 37 assists and 22 goals for the German national team. That's an incredible involvement. Um, as I said, it's because they. it helps that they've got Tony Cruz and Sammy Kadira, Draxler and these people coming through. But that's what I mean. It's at Last season, Alexis Sanchez uh, sucked a lot of the resources from Arsenal's system and the way they play. And at the beginning, that favoured Ozil. Ozil was scoring more goals. But in terms of uh, getting the Ozil back that became world famous as the best number 10 in the world during his time at Real Madrid, if you want that to be seen at Arsenal, if that's what these pundits are expecting to see, then Arsenal needs to rethink uh, the makeup of this team at the moment because it's not getting the best out of him. And because he's, his chances aren't getting converted, the, the on-the-face-of-it numbers reflect really badly on him. Uh, when Arsenal lost to Stoke, he, he created three clear-cut opportunities. Uh, Hector Bellerin was on the receiving end of two of them. There's something wrong there if your primary playmaker is, is sliding in a through ball to your, uh, a wing-back playing on the wrong side. If, if Arsenal can sort of figure out what they want to do and, and who they want to play, then um, Mesut Ozil's numbers, as I said, he's creating uh, chances at, at a similar rate to Real Madrid. Uh, they're just not getting put away. I agree. Oh, I agree. I agree that Arsenal. maybe he's uh, he's put uh, his future in doubt. That was probably the wrong. That was probably the wrong way to end the statement. But I'm on his side in terms of the fact that he's do- he is doing his job for Arsenal. It's just there are a lot of other problems that make him very easy to single out. So, team righty or team Ertzil? I'm 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 team Mezzet. Yeah, team Mezzet. Both team Mezzet. I'm going to go. Sorry, team. we got. I'm a, I'm a contrarian, so I'm going to go team right, and then I'm just going to end end this segment and move on to I'm embarrassed to ask, so that no one can argue with me. I'm embarrassed to ask. All right, then I'm embarrassed to ask because let's face it, I don't really know nothing. I know rude chants and cult heroes, <laughs> some of them. What I don't know is how FIFA put together their world rankings because I'm looking at a Switzerland number four at the moment and. How does that come about? I see, fair enough, I don't think England are in the top anything, right? But I'm seeing some teams in there and I just can't understand how they've got there. Argentina uh, Argentina, a couple of months ago were number one and I know they've been a bit shaky for the last few months. Now they're number four, but no, are they no, no now they're number three because Switzerland are number four. <laughs> Look, Poland, Poland five. Poland are number five. That's yeah. even more surprising than Switzerland are number four. Yeah. Denmark beat Poland four 0 in this international break. 
I'm disgusted by the Denmark to number one. Chart. Someone tell me how they add it up because I know there's two different types of chart as well. There's like a coefficient one as well, and I don't know anything about that either. I just hear coefficient, and sometimes I tweet it when an English team loses in Europe because <laughs> I know that it Protect makes people angry. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, an article in the Times by uh, James Gearbrandt. Oh yeah, we're very close. Uh, yeah, and he, um, and he, it's basically what it's, it's an interesting article, but where effectively a, apparently a Romanian data analyst or computer scientist sent a letter to the FA saying, um, you know, you need to cancel these friendlies because it's going to cost you your seeding. And obviously they ignored it. But we, uh, England, I should say, rather than we, we had friendlies um, set up against Brazil and Ireland, I think, coming up. They were they were coming up and, and effectively, because the way it's geared is that matches are weighted in terms of their importance. And merely by playing a friendly, which counts for 40% of that of a competitive fixture, you are weakening your, I think even a positive result, you weaken you're standing within world football against those who don't play friendlies. So Switzerland and Poland, for example, Switzerland especially, play very, very few friendlies and therefore don't play these games of lesser importance and therefore don't do damage to their to their ranking position. Oh, well, how don't they play friendlies? Surely everyone... You don't have to. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's an international break for friendlies. You don't have to at all. And England are in a position where, because of things like Club Wembley, I don't think the FA can really afford, possibly, can afford not to play them. But, interesting, so James wrote this article and uh, a guy on Twitter called... A f- at football rankings info. Oh my god, he sounds so like a barrel of So you can tell that he didn't know what he's talking about. This he, he better know some info about he, football rankings, otherwise he, he could put, laugh off. He put us unbelievable because he kind of he he has the algorithm, he gets the algorithm, and he says that if England, because they then organised the one with Scotland afterwards, and then we obviously played France a few months, a couple of months ago. If we hadn't played Brazil, Ireland, and Scotland, we would ha- we would have a fifty nine point England is we would have a fifty nine point eight four percent chance of being seeded for next summer's World Cup. Because of playing those three friendlies, we now have a 0.01% chance of being seeded for the World Cup. And that is just for playing them. That's got nothing to do with whether or not you win, we, just by playing these games. So it, it's, obviously a, um, it's obviously a shame because the FA were aware of this and they've said that they're going to reassess. And I think FIFA have said they're going to reassess the world rankings. Sad fact is that just by playing in these friendly matches, because they're weighted lower than, than other games... England done themselves damage and they're going to be ranked at least second or third for the World Cup and probably come up against a good team and, and get beaten in, in the group stages. So Jay, are Sw- Switzerland, are they dodging friendlies because of this? Is that why they're dodging friendlies? Or they, there's just no appetite for them? Well, I think... I think there's the... Careful what you say here before Yeah, this, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> the fact that letters are being sent to the FA saying uh, you need to be aware of this suggests that other associations are aware of the impact that a friendly could have and... As we've said, there's no there's no obligation to play a friendly. So if you're aware of something that can damage your chances in, in a, an international tournament, then by all means, like if you're clever enough to spot that early, then I don't see why you should have to. But that's the problem: is there shouldn't ever be something in football where you're punished for playing a game. At the moment, it the fever rankings are more a manipulation of your yearly calendar than they are a reflection of your your talent as a football team and when that's becoming the case to define a FIFA world rankings of best football teams in the world that's when something's gone wrong uh, another flaw in it is the fact that if you lose you only ever get naught points so if you if you play Germany and you're ranked 50th in the world and you play the second best team in FIFA world rankings at the moment and you lose you get no points but if you're then Germany and they lose to San Marino they're not punished for losing to probably the worst team in European qualification, they still get naught. So there's no sort of, um, there's no, there's nothing that reflects well on a performance or yeah. or punching, the cliche of punching above your weight. If San Marino get a draw against Germany 
away. They should hang their heads in shame. They, they, they should be rewarded for, for getting that result. And, and you're not. So, especially in this day where, like, so far into how to analyse what matches and how to gain credit and how to assess how people are doing, it seems archaic that there isn't a method of just looking at performance and saying, right, you guys played unbelievably well. You might have lost, but you deserve to, you know, progress in the rankings for that reason. Why it was playing less, because why it was above us as well, I think. Aren't they? Are they playing less friendly? No, I think they're like 18th. I think England are 13th. Yeah, wait, but they've jumped up massively. And yeah, I think yeah. it was because they spotted the trend. Yeah. And that was in the article in the Times. Uh, Probably they, getting to semi-finals of the, the European yeah. Championships helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they mentioned that Wales, again, was sort of one of the associations that spotted the trend and thought, OK, let's just lower our friendlies a bit and, and we'll play the ones that we win. If we win, it doesn't reflect bad, but... Again, it's just being punished for organising calendar. And and you say there should be a way to sort of analyse performances based on uh, just every game and, and what you gain relative to your opponent. And there already is that in the FIFA Women rankings. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense that the FIFA rankings for the men are this uh, based on this average that's calculated over every four years, whereas the women's rankings are based on every match you've ever played and, the, and they calculate an average. And, that, and that's how it should be. You can get the perfect. If, if, it's, if it's every match you've ever played, if you've been quality for five years but rubbish for forty years, does that mean you're not going to be somewhere down the? That's the thing. I think the growth again just eventually because you would have been bad, you would have get more points when you started winning games. So it will it will all equal out the the women's game showing where the, the men should go. Even if you lose in these games, you can still get if there's a hundred points on offer for a match, uh, the losers can only get a maximum of twenty percent of the points. But if they do only lose narrowly 2-1 to Germany, they could get a high amount of points. Whereas if you get hammered 8-0, you will obviously get none. In the men's rankings at the moment, you can lose 24-0 or 2-0 and you only get punished by the same amount. Which is a so, huge relief for us. Yeah, exactly. But that, but that's the thing is that the, there's obviously a really good way of doing this and a bad way. And at the moment, only one is using the good way. And it, I don't understand why. I'll tell you what the right way is. It's championship belt. When it keeps it. <laughs> well, like, Ranking systems. Like, how about it's a ladder? Where, where if you beat them, you just swap. Yeah, exactly. And you have to have, you have, so, to have so a human representative on a massive 200-rung ladder. Imagine if France and Luxembourg had to have like a penalty shootout to see who if like, Luxembourg could get down to like 10th in the world. And France had <laughs> like 100th. It would been brilliant. Um, yeah, it's rubbish. But I think I think the the press it's got recently. But it's not new. Like, there, yeah. there were articles, well, no, it's always been like, there, I remember. There, there were articles written about ago. it in 2013 before the 2014 <laughs> World Cup. Um, but it sounds like it's finally because of just the ludicrous nature of the rankings at the moment and how skewed it looks like the draw is going to be next year. Um, it looks like it'll probably be changed by the time we get to Euro 2020. All algorithms. How am I meant to learn an algorithm? One algorithm I do know about is uh, the one on iTunes where if you rate, review and subscribe, we go up that. <laughs> also on Deezer, of course, and anywhere else where you find a podcast. Make sure you do that. Before we go on to Who's This Fella? The next feature. Who's this fella? David Zappa Costa. So Chelsea, they got him from Torino. Uh, looks like a, a Victor Moses rival. So a right back. Not really sure how much I know about him. I know he's an Italian international and that's about it. But there's been some pretty rogue players in that squad. Uh, Diamante <laughs> got in there for quite a while. Actually, wasn't he? Didn't he score the, one of the penalties in the shootout yeah, against he, England? Absolutely, that's all he was used ah, for. Yeah, set pieces. The good point when he was when he was in England. But yeah. So Zappacos, what what do we reckon of him going to Chelsea? Then is he just coming into? Is he going to replace Moses, or is he competition, or is he? 
underneath Moses. What, what's the plan with him? I think it's a really sharp signing because he offers something very, very different um, to to Chelsea because whilst Moses is the, the winger turned wing back, he's someone who's very good at taking players on. He's someone who's very good at tracking back with his pace and his athleticism and, and his strength. Whereas um, Zappa Costa is a right back by trade who it looks will be converted into a... Um, right wing back probably more in your Marcus Alonso style and that he was not particularly quick and he's going to hold his position pretty firmly but um, all you really need to know is his nickname amongst Chelsea fans now is David Zappacrosta because Ugh, he yuck. loves crossing <laughs> um, I'm sure Jake's got some very good stats about his crossing but you know he's, he's, he's basically just a guy who, who is known for his unbelievable um, ability to put the ball on the striker's head and I'm sure Alvaro Morata who, who's already scored two headers this season is looking forward to profiting from that from that service How can I give him a nickname when they haven't seen him play yet? Well, it's because they're gonna they've, they've seen these numbers that I'm about to drop and it, it all makes sense Are you sense. telling me that like, those Chelsea fans sitting in the what is it the Matthew Harding stand or whatever over there, sort of loud one is they're sitting there and like, wow, do you know he's got a <laughs> cross completion of 64 percent? No, it's, it's actually only 22 percent. Oh, but well, that is flogging that is re- that is relatively high for crossing because obviously it's a it's a it's a but not very, for those fans in the Matthew Harding stand, they they much prefer 64 percent. It's a it's a very high risk sort of delivery, but um. So during his time in Syria, it was at Atalanta and Torino, uh, he put in 418 crosses and that was one every 14 minutes if you look at his total time played. Uh, he was in the top three most crosses by defenders in Syria in that time. Uh, Who the other two? Napoli, Goulam and um, I had him written down oh, and he's, he's escaped me. I know, I should have put uh, him yeah, down. It's, um, Giuseppe... Oh, it's Pasquale that played for... Fiorentina for a bit is now at Chievo yeah, I remembered people it people call Giuseppe Smith yeah yeah that's yeah. his nickname that that's it. what the Chelsea fans I'm, call I'm him I'm so anyway. glad I actually remembered um, <laughs> so that's once every 14 minutes as I said and um, people again with crossing I remember when uh, Benjamin Mendy and, and Danilo were signed for Man City everyone said oh they're going to have good fun crossing it into Gabriel Jesus who's 6 foot 8 uh, a cross isn't defined by how far it goes off the floor it's from a wide position getting it in the box and and George mentioned Morata is good in the air, but also he's got great movement. That's what Conte's bought him for, is a bit more of a... Well, no, Diego Costa's movement is good as well, but Zappa Costa will really enjoy sort of... Doesn't need to get to the byline to cross. He'll be able to put it from a deeper position straight across the six-yard box, and Morata will be the sort of player that thrives on that. So in that sense, Zappa Costa will be sort of the mirror image of, of Marcus Alonso on the left. Marcus Alonso, again, is not the most graceful player... He's got a very nice left foot, but he looks quite awkward when he's running. He, he's taller than you'd expect a wing-back to be. Uh, same as Zappacosta again. So Conte's obviously looked at Alonso, look at the success that Alonso brought to his side last year and has now offered that on the right-hand side. Um, Zappacosta will play wing-back for Italy when he's used more. Ventura's been using him more. Um, and he's sort of... It's strange to say that Damian is still like their first choice wing back, but Zappacosta is similar in that way. He's he's comfortable on the ball. He'll play right back, right wing back, and and could probably play right wing if if he ever needed to in an ultra defensive formation. But in him, they've bought this um, right wing back who will be a great deliverer of the ball and will definitely offer more tactical uh, solidarity. Uh, Victor Moses again has been caught out a few times and, and does rely on his pace. Uh, to recover, whereas Zabacosta is probably going to be in shape the whole time, uh, not venturing too far forward and using his ability to cross the ball to cover distance rather than dribbling past players. So, 
the move seemed to come a little bit out of nowhere for yeah. me on deadline day. But, but did you know anything about it, George? You've, you've got your ear to the ground on everything involving right backs, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I didn't know it was coming. Um, I hadn't really heard much. I mean, these days it's pretty weird for a Premier League transfer, especially for a champion, yeah. um, to not be reported on. You get the feeling that half the stories that are reported on probably uh, don't even exist. Um, but no, it seemed to come out of the blue. Who knows if Chelsea even knew it was going to happen? Obviously, they've been a, a link with a host of fullbacks over the summer. Um, and maybe it was just a case of this one becoming available late on. But that doesn't by any means um, mean that it's a bad signing. I'm pretty confident that even if he doesn't play every game of the season, because there will be times where Moses and his pace and his attacking intent will be will be more useful. But I, I do think that he'll be someone who will settle in well there and be an important you, player. You reckon he's first choice more often than not? I, 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 I don't you can really say that. Yeah. I think it's just horses for courses, really. Yeah, I was about to say that getting... Sabah Costa rather than Oxlade-Chamberlain who we spoke about before on this maybe playing centre midfield sometimes mm-hmm. Oxlade-Chamberlain's skill set is very similar to Victor Moses yeah. and in buying him they would have just bought someone if Moses got injured in Sabah Costa now they have a player where if they need to be even more structured and rigid they've got a defender uh, and a right wing back that can add to the attack but from a stationary position rather than relying on someone to venture forward and, and join the attack so as George said, it's it's a different option to Victor Moses, so it's hard to tell which one will start more often than not. I've got a feeling he will eventually be the first choice, purely because of how well Marcus Alonso slotted into what Conte wanted to achieve. All right then, lads. Enough about Zappa Costa, and on to the crucial part of this podcast. We're coming into... Take deep breaths, both of you, because you're about to go to war. Stats Showdown. <laughs> Stats Showdown. So this is basically a shoot-off between two Stats Cowboys. George and Jake. Hot take, Jake. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> uh, the first, well, basically it's best out of three. We'll have three rounds. Impress me with a stat because I need to sound smart in front of people and I don't want to be judged. I don't want people to say that's a boring stat. So I need you to impress me. George, you looked at me. So you can go first. Well, mine's definitely not boring. It's a bit of a silly stat. Whoa, hello. I to tell you, mates. Um, <laughs> Swansea, who played Newcastle at home this weekend, they've had five shots on target so far this season and already picked up four points. Spurs had the most shots last season and if they had got them at the same rate, they'd have ended up with 283 points. That is a wacky stat. <laughs> it's very wacky. Um, I'm gonna... They don't call you wacky, Jake. Have you ever heard the, the, the shots per point ratio? Shots per point. <laughs> no, but it's something that I can imagine I'm going to have zero interest in in my whole life. Oh, no. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> That's just rude. As, as Spurs were mentioned, I'll, I'll, I'll go across uh, and use a North London rival to rival the stat oh, itself. You, you are a hot take, Jake. And um, oh. if Arsenal lose to Bournemouth... It will okay. be their worst ever start to a Premier League season after four games ever. And if they draw, it will be their joint worst. Four points in 94 and 95 and 2011-12. Not going well for Arsene Wenger's side. Not going well for you either, yeah. Jake. That was nowhere near as fun, wacky and silly as George's. That, 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 that was when you'll just see how match the day. On Saturday, uh, won't you? You'll just see Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. That'll just come after. Because that's, that's, that's ruining that's me now. <laughs> that's I'm undefeated before today. Oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. You've got a chance, though. Because you can come back with another shot from your stat gun. Reloading, going back to Klopp and Pep Guardiola. Jurgen Klopp has won more points per game against last season's top six than he has against any other team in the league. He's currently got 36 points in 19 games versus big clubs, which is 1.89. And it's 1.82, 95 points from 52 games against all the other minnows. Mm -hmm. So it serves to 
serves evidence that he's good in those big games. Mm-hmm. But not good in the other ones, George. Yeah, mine is also um, focusing on Liverpool and Man City this weekend on two of their key players, I'd say, uh, Mohamed Salah and Kevin De Bruyne. Probably in some ways fairly similar players in, in terms of where they play, but not necessarily uh, their style of play. Mohamed Salah has had 11 shots already this season in three games, all of which were inside the box. Kevin De Bruyne has had seven shots this season, all outside the box, all on target, and hasn't scored a goal. That thump was me being blasted backwards by George's stat. Hot take Jake. 2-0 down. He's done it. And my last one is rubbish as well. I'm so absolutely... Oh. I'm, I'm genuinely gutted. I'm fuming now. He went for Fraudiola and Fraudlop. I know this guy. He, 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 he likes wacky stats. I've got to go wacky <laughs> I next love week. wacky stats, but... Jake, while you're on the floor dying, why, why not floor? give him a horrible scar? I haven't got any wacky ones. Oh, just give me an impressive one then. I'll go to wacky, and then I go to Andy Robinson, oh. who's probably the least wacky player in the Premier League. But oh, he no. He's in the Premier League. <laughs> Andy Robinson, in his Liverpool debut against Crystal Palace, completed 92 passes. He averaged just 28 last season for Hull. There we go. It turns out playing for a better team means you get to play with better players and get the ball more. <laughs> Um, Go on, Jake. Punish him. All right, I'll just I'll just use uh, Kylian Mbappe because I'm already lost. Uh, if he Might scores, this point. if he scores uh, for PSG on his debut at the weekend, he's expected to play. He'll be the youngest ever player to score on their debut for at least 30 years. The archives were too old for me to look further back. Anything where an archive becomes too old is quite good. <laughs> it depends whose archive you use. Um, <laughs> yeah. My archives, which I've been keeping for three weeks, yeah, exactly, have, yeah. have no records. That's what I'm going to do next week. <laughs> Before records began, when? Last week. Yeah, I, I like a rundown archive, Jake. So it's, it's 2 1. You got, you got George okay. with a sort of glancing blow to the Some jaw. Yeah. <laughs> But chicks dig scars and stats, as I've said before. Uh, if you want to hear some more stats from Jake, where can they find you online? Uh, at Jake Entwistle on Twitter. Simple as. And George. Yeah. At George Ellick, E-L-E-K is hard to tell my surname. And you can find me at Rob Armstrong underscore WH. And also, don't forget, subscribe to Defending in Numbers on Deezer, iTunes and everywhere else where you find podcasts. Also, in your ears, which is where they are most of the time, right? Unless it's, unless it's your brains when you're having to think about it. Right, lads? Yeah. On that note, <laughs> on that note, we will see you next week on Defending in Numbers. Defending in Numbers is a Deezer Originals production. You can find and download more episodes on Deezer and all major podcast providers. Deezer, Deezer. Originals. <laughs>